this is Yana from the Jacksonville Collective back for the second episode of this project I believe I'm calling Let's Read. Um, real original, I know. <laughs> so here we are. Um, if you listened to the first episode or if you listened to part of it or if you made it all the way through, I commend you. I can imagine it was a strange, different experience on a podcast, but we're back. Um, and I'll be even more surprised if you're back for more, but if you are, that's amazing. And, um, thank you. Thank you for your support and thanks for being into this. This is really, really cool. I'm here to read Albert Camus' The Fall. Um, I'm going to read one chapter per podcast episode. Um, and then I'm going to talk about the what I just read right afterwards. So it's a period of preamble, which is right now, a period of me reading literally from the book, and then a period of discussion at the end. So it's a great way to have an audiobook, but also have some discussion as well. Um, you just have to deal with the fact that I am not a professional audiobook reader, nor am I uh, uh, an English major, nor am I at all equipped to analyze this book in the first place. So you're not really getting much aside from um, I might be the only guy on the internet who's going out of his way to do this, but uh, you're stuck with me. Thanks for being along for the ride. Um, so I just want to make it clear again on the method and the format here. Um, feel free to listen to this. If you want to pick up the book and read along with me, that would be great. Um, if you just want to listen to the audio of uh, me reading, that's also great. I'm going to do my best to make it clear and exciting. And if you don't want to listen to the audio of the book at all, and you've already read the book, and you just want to read or listen to chapter by chapter discussions, um, please check the show notes, and I'll have timestamps for everything, just so you can skip ahead as well. Hop in where you want to hop in, is the end of the, at the end of the day. Um, a couple of quick housekeeping items from the last episode. Uh, the first thing is I had railed on about there being five chapters in this book. Um, and there's going to be five episodes of this podcast spinoff. There's actually six chapters. So there's going to be even more reading. Um, the last chapter is very short. It might even be so short that we condense it into the final or the fifth episode. But as of now, there are six chapters. So prepare for six episodes. I'm very likely going to record and release one of these every two to three days. Because this is a book that's best read um, over the course of the same amount of time as is actually taking place in the book. Um, this is one of these amazing things that you can experience with a book like this is the plot of the book. Each chapter is a day, and you can listen and read it in that same way where you read a chapter, you go to bed, you wake up the next day, you come back to Jean-Baptiste Clements for even more. And so that's why I'm doing this episodic format of the podcast as well. This whole book lends itself so well to something like that. So last time we read the first chapter, we met Jean-Baptiste Clements, our protagonist. He's a Frenchman who has a history of being a defense lawyer. He's posted up in a bar called Mexico City in the middle of Amsterdam, and he stumbles across an unnamed man who... Clemence has decided to take a liking to, talk to, and give a five-day confession to um, in his own eccentric, crazy way. 
um, we end the last chapter with Clemence accompanying this man home and stopping at a bridge and letting the man make his way the rest of the way. Um, and so we're going to pick it up basically from exactly there. Um, so like I said, feel free to listen along. If you want to jump ahead to discussion, by all means, go ahead and do that now. And yeah, without further ado, this is chapter two of Albert Camus' The Fall. What is a judge penitent? Ah, I intrigued you with that business. I meant no harm by it, believe me, and I can explain myself more clearly. In a way, that even belongs to my official duties. But I first must set forth a certain number of facts that will help you to understand my story. A few years ago, I was a lawyer in Paris and, indeed, a rather well-known lawyer. Of course, I didn't tell you my real name. I had a specialty, noble cases. Widows and orphans, as the saying goes. I don't know why, because there are improper widows and ferocious orphans. Yet, it was enough for me to sniff the slightest scent of victim on a defendant for me to swing into action. And what action? A real tornado. My heart was on my sleeve. You would really have thought that justice slept with me every night. I am sure you would have admired the rightness of my tone, the appropriateness of my emotion, the persuasion and warmth, the restrained indignation of my speeches before the court. Nature favored me as to my physique and the noble attitude comes effortlessly. Furthermore, I was buoyed up by two sincere feelings. The satisfaction of being on the right side of the bar and an instinctive scorn for the judges in general. That scorn, after all, wasn't perhaps so instinctive. I know now that it had its reasons, but seen from the outside, it looked rather like a passion. It can't be denied that for the moment at least, we have, we have to have judges, don't we? However, I could not understand how a man could offer himself to perform such a surprising function. I accepted the fact because I saw it, but rather as I accepted locus, with this difference, that the invasions of those orthop- orthoptera never brought me a sow, whereas I earned my living by carrying on a dialogue with people I scorned. But after all, I was on the right side. That was enough to satisfy my conscience. The feeling of the law, the satisfaction of being right, the joy of self-esteem, cher monsieur, all are powerful incentives for keeping us upright or keeping us moving forward. On the other hand, if you deprive men of them, you transform them into dogs frothing with rage. How many crimes committed merely because their authors could not endure being wrong? I once knew a manufacturer who had a perfect wife, admired by all, and yet he deceived her. That man was literally furious to be in the wrong, to be blocked from receiving or granting himself a certificate of virtue. The more virtues his wife manifested, the more vexed he became. Eventually, living in the wrong became unbearable to him. What do you think he did then? He gave up deceiving her? Not at all. He killed her. That is how I entered into relations with him. My situation was more enviable. Not only did I run no risk of joining the criminal camp, in particular I had no chance of killing my wife, being a bachelor, 
but I even took up their defenses, on the sole condition that they should be noble murderers, as others are noble savages. The very manner in which I conducted that defense gave me great satisfactions. I was truly above reproach in my professional life. I never accepted a bribe, it goes without saying, and I never stooped either to any shady proceedings. And, this even rarer, I never deigned to flatter any journalist to get him on my side, nor any silver servant whose friendship might be useful to me. I even had the luck of seeing the legion of honor offered to me two or three times and being able to refuse it with the discreet dignity in which I found my true award. Finally, I never charged the poor for a fee and never boasted of it. Don't think for a moment, cher monsieur, that I am bragging. I take no credit for this. The avidity which our, in our society substitutes for ambition has always made me laugh. I was aiming higher. You will see that the expression is exact in my case. But you can already imagine my satisfaction. I enjoyed my own nature to the fullest, and we all know that there lies happiness, although to soothe one another mutually, we occasionally pretend to contemn such joys as selflessness. At least I enjoyed that part of my nature, which reacted so appropriately to the widow and orphan that eventually, through exercise, it came to dominate my whole life. For instance, I loved to help blind people cross the streets. From as far away as I could see, from as far away as I could see a cane hesitating on the edge of a sidewalk, I would rush forward, sometimes only a second ahead of another charitable hand already outstretched, snatch the blind person from any solicitude but mine, and lead him gently but firmly along the crosswalk, among the traffic obstacles toward the refuge of the other sidewalk, where I would separate him with a mutual emotion. In the same way, I always enjoyed giving directions in the street, obliging with a light, lending a hand to heavy push carts, pushing a stranded car, buying a paper from the Salvation Army lass or flowers from the old peddler, though I knew she stole them from the Montpar Cemetery. I also liked, and this is harder to say, I liked to give alms. A very Christian friend of mine admitted that one's initial feeling on seeing a beggar approach one's house is unpleasant. Well, with me, it was worse. I used to exult, but let's not dwell on this. Let us speak rather of my courtesy. It was famous and unquestionable. Indeed, good manners provided me with great delights. If I had the luck, certain mornings, to give up my seat on the bus or subway to someone who obviously deserved it, to pick up some object an old lady had dropped and return it to her with a smile, I knew well, were I merely to forfeit my taxi to someone in a greater hurry than I? It was a red-letter day. I even rejoiced. I must admit, those days when the transport system being on strike, I had a chance to load into my car at the bus stops some of my unfortunate fellow citizens unable to get home. Giving up my seat in the theater to allow a couple to sit together, hoisting a girl's suitcase onto the rack in the train. These were all deeds I performed more often than others because I paid more attention to the opportunities and was better able to relish the pleasure they give. Consequently, I was considered generous, and so I was. I gave a great deal in public and in private. But far from suffering, when I had to give up an object or sum of money, I derived constant pleasure from this. Among them, a sort of melancholy, which occasionally rose within me at the thought of the sterility of those gifts, and the probable ingratitude that would follow. 
I even took to such pleasures in giving that I hated to be obliged to do so. Exactitude in money matters bored me to death, and I conformed ungraciously. I had to be the master of my liberalities. These are just little touches, but they will help you grasp the constant delights I experienced in my life, and especially in my profession. Being stopped in the corridor of the law courts by the wife of a defendant you represented out of justice or pity alone, I mean without charge, hearing that woman whisper that nothing, no nothing, could ever repay what you had done for them, replying that it was quite natural that anyone would have done as much, even offering some financial help to tide over the bad days ahead, then, in order to cut the effusion short and preserve their proper resonance, kissing the hand of a poor woman and breaking away. Believe me, cher monsieur, this is achieving more than the vulgar ambitious man and rising to that supreme summit where virtue is its own reward. Let's pause on these heights. Now you understand what I meant when I spoke of aiming higher. I was talking, it so happens, of these supreme summits, the only places I can really live. Yes, I have never felt comfortable except in lofty places, even in the details of daily life. I needed to feel above. I preferred the bus to the subway, open carriages to taxis, terraces to closed-in places. An enthusiast for sports planes, in which one's head is in the open. On boats, I was the eternal pacer at the top deck. In the mountains, I used to flee the deep valleys for the passes and plateaus. I was the man of the mesas, at least. If fate had forced me to choose between work at a lathe or work as a roofer, don't worry. I'd have chosen the roofs and become acquainted with dizziness. Coal bins, ship's holds, undergrounds, grottos... Pits were repulsive to me. I had even developed a special loathing for speleologists who had the nerve to fill the front page of our newspapers and whose records nauseated me. Striving to reach elevation minus 800 at the risk of getting one's head caught in a rocky funnel, a siphon as these fools say, seemed to me the exploit of perverted traumatized characters. There was something criminal underlying it. A natural balcony, 1,500 feet above a sea, still visible bathed in sunlight. On the other hand was that place where I could breathe most freely, especially if I were alone. Well, above the human ants. I could readily understand why sermons, decisive precincts, and fire miracles took place on accessible heights. In my opinion, no one meditated in cellars or prison cells, unless they were situated in a tower with a broad view. One just became moldy. And I could understand that man who, having entered the holy orders, gave up the frock because his cell, instead of overlooking a vast landscape as he expected, looked out on a wall. Rest assured that as far as I was concerned, I did not grow moldy. At every hour of the day, within myself and among others, I would scale the heights and light conspicuous fires, and a joyful greeting would rise towards me. Thus, at least I took pleasure in life and in my own excellence. My profession satisfied most happily that vocation for summits. It cleansed me of all bitterness toward my neighbor, whom I always obligated without ever owing him anything. It set me above the judge, whom I in turn, above the defendant whom I forced to gratitude. Just weigh this, cher monsieur, I lived with impunity. I was concerned in no judgment, 
I was not on the floor of the courtroom, but somewhere in the flies, like those gods that are brought down by machinery from time to time to transfigure the action and give it its meaning. After all, living aloft is still the only way of being seen and hailed by the largest number. Besides, some of my good criminals held killed in obedience to the same feeling. Reading the newspapers after, in the sore condition in which they were, doubtless brought them a sort of unhappy compensation. Like many men, they had no longer been able to endure anonymity, and that impatience had contributed to leading them to an unfortunate extremity. To achieve notoriety, it is enough, after all, to kill one's concierge. Unhappily, this is usually an ephemeral reputation. So many concierges are there who deserve and receive the knife. Crime constantly monopolizes the headlines, but the criminal there appears only fugitively to be replaced at once. In short, such brief triumphs cost too dear. Defending our unfortunate aspirants after reputation amounted, on the other hand, to becoming really well known at the same time and in the same places, but by more economical means. Consequently, this encouraged me to make more meritorious efforts. Sorry. <clears throat> Consequently, this encouraged me to making more meritorious, meritorious efforts so that they would pay as little as possible. What they were paying, they were doing so to some extent in my place. The indignation, talent, and emotion I expended on them washed away. In return, any debt I might feel towards them. The judges punished any the defendants expiated, while I, free of any duty, shielded away from judgment as from penalty. I freely held sway, bathed in a light as of Eden. Indeed, wasn't that Eden, cher monsieur? No intermediary between life and me? Such was my life. I never had to learn how to live. In that regard, I already knew everything at birth. Some people's problem is to protect themselves from men, or at least to come to terms with them. In my case, the understanding was already established, familiar when it was appropriate, silent when necessary, capable of a free and easy manner as readily as of dignity. I was always in harmony. Hence, my popularity was great and my success in society innumerable. I was acceptable in appearance. I revealed myself to be both a tireless dancer and an unobtrusively learned man. I managed to love simultaneously, and this is not easy, women and justice. I indulged in sports and the fine arts. In short, I'll not go on for fear you might suspect me of self-flattery. But imagine, I beg you, a man at the height of his powers, in perfect health, generously gifted, skilled in bodily exercises, as in those of the mind, neither rich nor poor, sleeping well and fundamentally pleased with himself, without showing this otherwise than by a felicitous sociability. You will readily see how I can speak without immodesty of a successful life. Yes, few creatures were more natural than I. I was altogether in harmony with life, fitting into it from top to bottom, without rejecting any of its ironies, its grandeur, or its servitude. In particular, that flesh, matter, the physical in sort, which disconcerts or discourages so many men in love or in solitude, without enslaving me, brought me steady joys. I was made to have a body, 
whence that harmony in me, that relaxed mastery that people felt, even to telling me sometimes that it helped them in life. Hence, my company was in demand. Often, for instance, people thought they had met me before. Life, its creatures and its gifts, offered themselves to me, and I accepted such marks of homage with a kindly pride. To tell the truth, just from being so fully and simply a man, I looked upon myself as something of a superman. I was of respectable but humble birth. My father was an officer. And yet, certain mornings, let me confess it humbly, I felt like a king's son or a burning bush. It was not a matter, mind you, of the certainty I had of being more intelligent than everyone else. Besides, such certainty is of no consequence because so many imbeciles share it. No. As a result of being showered with blessings, I felt, I hesitate to admit, marked out, personally marked out among all, for that long and uninterrupted success. This, after all, was a result of my modesty. I refused to attribute that success to my own merits, and could not believe that the conjunction in a single person of such different and such extreme virtues was the result of chance alone. This is why, in my happy life, I felt somehow that in happiness, that in that happiness was authorized. This is why, in my happy life, I felt somehow that that happiness was authorized by some higher decree. When I add that I had no religion, you can see even better how extraordinary that conviction was. Whether ordinary or not, it served me for some time to raise me above the daily routine, and I literally soared for a period of years. For which, to tell the truth, I still long in my heart of hearts. I soared until the evening when... But no, that's another matter, and it must be forgotten. Anyway, I am perhaps exaggerating. I was at ease in everything, to be sure, but at the same time satisfied with nothing. Each joy made me desire another. I went from festivity to festivity. On occasion, I danced for nights on end, ever matter about people and in life. At times, late on those nights when the dancing, the slight intoxication, my wild enthusiasm, everyone's violent unrestraint would fill me with such tired and overwhelmed rapture, it would seem to me at the breaking point of fatigue and for a second's flash that at last I understood the secret of creatures and of the world. But my fatigue would disappear the next day, and with the secret, I would rush forth anew, I ran on like that, always heaped with favors, never satiated, without knowing where to stop until the day, until the evening rather, when the music stopped and the lights went out. The gay party at which I had been so happy. But allow me to call on our friend, the primate. Nod your head and thank him above all. Drink up with me. I need your understanding. I can see that declaration amazes you. Have you never suddenly needed understanding? Help? Friendship? Yes, of course. I have learned to be satisfied with understanding. It is found more readily, and, besides, it's not binding. I beg you to believe in my sympathetic understanding. In the inner discourse always proceeds immediately. And now let's turn to other matters. It's a board chairman's emotion. It comes cheap after catastrophes. Friendship is less simple. It is long and hard to obtain, but when one has it, there's no getting rid of it. 
One simply has to cope with it. Don't think for a minute that your friends will telephone you every evening, as they ought to, in order to find out if this doesn't happen to be the evening when you are deciding to commit suicide, or simply whether you don't need company, whether you are not in a mood to go out. No, don't worry. They'll ring up the evening you are not alone, when life is beautiful. As for suicide, they would be more likely to push you to it by virtue of what you owe to yourself, according to them. May heaven protect us, cher monsieur, from being set on a pedestal by our friends. Those whose duty is to love us, I mean relatives and connections, what an expression, are another matter. They find the right word. All right. And it hits the bullseye. They telephone as if shooting a rifle. And they know how to aim. Oh, the bazines. What? What evening? I'll get to it. Be patient with me. In a certain way, I am sticking to my subject with all that chat about friends and connections. You see, I've heard of a man whose friend has been imprisoned and who slept on the floor of his room every night in order to not enjoy a comfort of which his friend had been deprived. Who, cher monsieur, will sleep on the floor with us? Whether am I, whether I am capable of it myself? Look, I'd like to be, and I shall be. Yes, we shall all be capable of it one day, and that will be salvation. But it's not easy, for friendship is as absent-minded, or at least unavailing. It is incapable of achieving what it wants. Maybe, after all, it doesn't want it enough. Maybe we don't love life enough. Have you noticed that death alone awakens our feelings? How we love the friends who have just left us? How we admire those of our teachers who have ceased to speak, their mouths filled with earth. Then the expression of admiration springs forth naturally, that admiration they were perhaps expecting from us all their lives. But do you know why we are always more just and more generous towards the dead? The reason is simple. With them, there is no obligation. They leave us free, and we can take our time, fit the testimonial in between a cocktail party and a nice little mistress, in our spare time, in short. If they forced us to anything, it would be to remembering, and we have a short memory. No, it is the recently dead we love among our friends, the painful dead, our emotions, ourselves after all. For instance, I had a friend I generally avoided. He rather bored me, and besides, he was something of a moralist. But when he was on his deathbed, I was there, don't worry. I never missed a day. He, sat, he died satisfied with me, holding both my hands. A woman who used to chase after me, and in vain, had the good sense to die young. What room in my heart at once? And when, in addition, it's a suicide, Lord, what a delightful commotion. One's telephone rings, one's heart overflows, and the intentionally short sentences, yet heavy with implications, one's restrained suffering, and even, yes, a bit of self-accusation. That's the way man is, cher monsieur. He has two faces. He can't love without self-love. Notice your neighbors if perchance a death takes place in the building. They were asleep in their little routine, and suddenly, for example, the concierge dies. At once they awake, bestier themselves, get the details, commiserate. A newly dead man and the show begins at last. They need tragedy, don't you know? It's their little transcendence, 
their aperitif. Moreover, is it mere chance that I should speak of a concierge? I had one, really ill-favored, malice incarnate, a monster of insignificance and rancor. Who would have discouraged a Franciscan? I had even given up speaking to him, but by his mere existence he compromised my customary contentedness. He died and I went to his funeral. Can you tell me why? Anyway, the two days preceding the ceremony were full of interest. The concierge's wife was ill, lying in the single room, and near her the coffin had been set on sawhorses. Everyone had to get his mail himself. You open the door, said Bonjour, madame, and listened to her praise of the dear departed as she pointed to him and took your mail. Nothing very amusing about that. And yet the whole building passed through her room, which stank of carbolic acid, and the tenants didn't send their servants either. They came themselves to take advantage of the unexpected attraction. The servants did too, of course, but on the sly. The day of the funeral, the coffin was too big for the door. Oh, my dearie, the wife said from her bed with a big surprise at once, delighted and grieved. How big he was. Don't worry, madame, replied the funeral director. We'll get him through edgewise and upright. He was gone through upright and then laid down again, and I was the only one with a former cabaret doorman who, I gathered, used to drink his pernode every evening with the departed to go as far as the cemetery and strewn flowers in a coffin of astounding luxury. Then I paid a visit to the concierge's wife to receive her thanks, expressed as by a great tragedian. Tell me, what was the reason for all that? None, except the aperitif. I likewise buried an old fellow member of the lawyer's guild, a clerk to whom no one paid attention, but I always shook his hand. Where I worked, I used to shake everyone's hand, moreover, being doubly sure to miss no one. Without much effort, such cordial simplicity won me the popularity so necessary to my commitment, to my contentment. For the funeral of our clerk, the president of the guild had not gone out of his way. But I did, and on the evening of a trip, was, as was amply pointed out, it so happened that I knew my presence would be noticed and favorably commented on. Hence, you see, not even the snow that was falling that day made me withdraw. What? I'm getting to it, never fear. Besides, I have never left it. But let me first point out that my concierge's wife, who had gone to such an outlay for the crucifix, heavy oak, and silver handles in order to get the most out of her emotion, had shacked up a month later with an overdressed yokel, proud of his singing voice. He used to beat her. Frightful streams could be heard, and immediately afterward he would open the window and give forth with his favorite song. Women, how pretty you are. All the same, the neighbors would say. All the same what, I ask you? All right. Appearances were against the baritone and against the concierge's wife too. But nothing proves that they were not in love. And nothing proves either that she did not love her husband. Moreover, when the yokel took flight, his voice and arm exhausted... She, that faithful wife, resumed her praises of the departed. After all, I know of others who have appearances on their side and are no more faithful or sincere. I knew a man who gave 20 years of his life to a scatterbrained woman, sacrificing everything to her, his friendships, his work, the very respectability of his life, and who one evening recognized that he had never loved her. 
He had been bored, that's all. Bored like most people. Hence he had made himself out of the whole cloth a life full of complications and drama. Something must happen, and that explains most human commitments. Something must happen, even loveless slavery, even war or death. Hooray then for funerals. But I at least didn't have that excuse. I was not bored because I was riding on the crest of the wave. On the evening I am speaking about, I can say, that I was even less bored than ever. And yet, you see, cher monsieur, it was a fine autumn evening, still warm in town and already damp over the Seine. Night was falling. The sky, still bright in the west, was darkening. The street lamps were glowing dimly. I was walking up the quays of the left bank toward the Pont des Arts. The river was gleaming between the stalls of the second-hand booksellers. There were but few people on the quays. Paris was already at dinner. I was treading on the dusty yellow leaves that still recalled summer. Gradually, the sky was falling with stars that could be seen for a moment after leaving one street lamp and heading towards another. I enjoyed the return of silence, the evening's mildness, the emptiness of Paris. I was happy. The day had been good. A blind man, the reduced sentence I had hoped for, a cordial hand clasp from my client, a few liberalities and in the afternoon, a brilliant improvisation in the company of several friends on the hard-heartedness of our governing class and the hypocrisy of our leaders. I had gone up on the Pont des Arts, deserted at that hour, to look at the river that could hardly be made out now that night had come. Facing the statue of the Vert Galant, I dominated the island. I felt rising within me a vast feeling of power, and I didn't know how to express it, of completion which cheered my heart. I straightened up and was about to light a cigarette, the cigarette of satisfaction, when, at that very moment, a laugh burst out behind me. Taken by surprise, I suddenly wheeled around. There was no one there. I stepped back to the railing, no barge or boat. I turned back towards the island and again heard the laughter behind me, a little farther off as if it were going downstream. I stood there motionless. The sound of the laughter was decreasing, but I could still hear it distinctly behind me. Come from nowhere unless from the water? At the same time, I was aware of the rapid beating of my heart. Please don't misunderstand me. There was nothing mysterious about that laugh. It was a good, hearty, almost friendly laugh which reestablished the proper proportions. Soon, I heard nothing more. Anyway, I returned to the quays and went up the Rue Dauphin and bought some cigarettes I didn't need at all. I was dazed and had trouble breathing. That evening, I rang up a friend who wasn't at home. I was hesitating about going out when, suddenly, I heard laughter under my windows. I opened them. On the sidewalk, in fact, some youths were loudly saying goodnight. I shrugged my shoulders as I closed the windows after all. I had a brief to study. I went to the bathroom to drink a glass of water. My reflection was smiling in the mirror, but it seemed to me that my smile was double. What? Forgive me. I was thinking of something else. I'll see you again tomorrow, probably. Tomorrow. Yes, that's right. No, no, I can't stay. Besides, I am called in consultation by that brown bear of a man you see over there. A decent fellow, for sure, whom the police are meanly persecuting out of sheer perversity. 
You think he looks like a killer? Rest assured that his actions conform to his looks. He burgles likewise, and you will be surprised to learn that that caveman is specialized in the art trade. In Holland, everyone is a specialist in paintings and in tulips. This one, with his modest mien, is the author of the most famous theft of a painting. Which one, I may tell you? Don't be surprised at my knowledge. Although I am a judge penitent, I have my sideline here. I am the legal counselor of these good people. I studied the laws of the country and built up a clientele in this quarter where diplomas are not required. It wasn't easy, but I inspire confidence, don't I? I have a good hearty laugh and an energetic handshake, and those are trump cards. Besides, I settled a few difficult cases out of self-interest to begin with and later out of conviction. If pimps and thieves were invariably sentenced, all decent people would get into thinking they themselves were constantly innocent, cher monsieur. And in my opinion, all right, all right, I'm coming. That's what must be avoided above all. Otherwise, everything would be just a joke. All right, so that was chapter two of Albert Camus' The Fall. Um, <laughs> a little bit longer this time, a little bit more uh, maybe intense is the right word. That's exactly how I would describe this second chapter. Um, I think we spent a lot of the first chapter kind of getting oriented with the story and the narrator and how the even the, the way that the novel is structured and how to really like learn about how we interpret the story, what the perspective of the main character is, who he's talking to, his locale. Um, it was really an establishment chapter. It's a very short chapter. And so it's all about the setup. And here we have chapter two. It's the next day. Um, he's met back up at the bar with this same anonymous man who's for some reason decided to join him again. And we actually get to learn about John Clements. Um, we get to learn about John Clements talking about himself. We get to learn about him through his own perspective. Um, and this is actually very interesting. Most of the time we are learning about characters through um, their dialogue, of course. We're learning about characters through other people's descriptions of them. Um, and we're also learning about characters through third-party um, objective or omniscient narrators. It's very rare we learn about a character, and the only thing we get to learn about him is um, him telling us about himself. Just, again, it's similar to what I mentioned in the last episode, where the perspective of this novel is so interesting, where it's kind of a first person, but we don't get any insight into the mind of Jean Clements. And um, to now add on to that, we only get to learn about Jean Clements through the lens of himself looking back on his own life. And that's very interesting to me as well. I don't know if I've experienced this elsewhere so distinctly and so at its core um, than in the fall. And what an interpretation and what a recounting of one's own life indeed. Um, this is a man who 
takes this really interesting and really strange approach to describing and looking back on his own life. Um, obviously, the content of what he says when you when you read what he's saying, he's this virtuous, amazing, high-performing, zest-for-life man who can who's noble and just and full of virtue and everything like that, everything you could imagine that a good citizen or a good quote-unquote good person would have and entail. He's had all of that. He's got all of that. Um, But the way that he describes himself takes this strangely detached, objective-esque form where he's looking back and he's giving himself like in a way some unbelievable compliments about how virtuous and how amazing he was in his life and how good how much good he did for other people but he's taking this lens of like he's not taking any personal pride in it he's not saying this was entirely due to his own volition or his own efforts he literally talks about it as if he just stumbled into his way of being as if he didn't choose it he even just talks about how he just kind of fit into life the way that he was and he understood it from birth and he just had to live it um <clears throat> so it's just it's such an interesting um concept because on the one side it's how he was as a person that's interesting enough someone who just happens to fit well into every facet of life and happens to be very virtuous no flaws no struggle just does mere good in the world um but then we get this other layer of like he's describing himself as that and he's not even doing it in a way that he's boasting at least in my interpretation he even says that i'm trying to avoid boasting he says um he instead takes this weirdly objective scientific like almost anthropological approach to his own life like he is one step removed from his past and he's trying to understand it and that to me is so interesting. I don't even know what to say about it, but it's interesting to me because it's interesting to me because in a way it's a little bit relatable. Um, I, I don't see myself as someone with a lot of struggle in their life. I don't see myself as someone who's endured a lot of hardship. Um, someone who's like done pretty good so far without much complaints, who's pretty happy with the way things are going in their life. And <laughs> it's, it's kind of strange. And I, am, I also feel this way like Clements does. I don't even feel personally that responsible. It's just, oh, yeah, this is just the way that things have fallen thus far is that I've been able to live a pretty good, happy, virtuous social life with the people around me. And things have just worked out. I haven't had any major struggles or any major sufferings um, in the way that so many people do have to deal with. And I don't even take pride in it. And it's, I don't know, this chapter is really, especially as I read it out loud, it's such an interesting chapter for me to read because when you read that first half I think all of us can probably see some of ourselves in that, whether it's certain traits or certain aspects of the best parts of us. We're like, yeah, if I look back at my own life, shit went pretty well there. 
or I'm pretty good at this, or, you know, I do go out of my way to, um, you know, to help a blind person cross the street or whatever it is. We like to engage in virtue or virtuous behavior. But then on top of that, the reasons that I think I then no longer associate with Jean-Baptiste is this weird air of cynicism where he seems to like revel or bathe in this like virtue porn. I don't know another way to put it. Like he loves this unbelievable feeling that he gets when he helps a blind man cross a street or when he turns down certain um, like donations or credit or he defends a criminal defense or criminal and successfully and he has the mother you know lapping him with praise and thankfulness and he's able to just brush it off so naturally and he just revels in how fucking virtuous he is and it is this this is the point where he totally loses me in, in terms of its relatability but doesn't stop being interesting as a character where he even recognizes that in himself too. He's saying, I I actually do bathe in this. I kind of get off on being this fucking unbelievably virtuous person. Um, and that's just such an interesting and strange view of oneself. Um, so one of the reasons why I read this book every year is like, yeah, things might be going really, really well. Um, things might be falling into place. You might be doing big things, but like... Don't be Clements. Don't be Jean-Baptiste. Like, actually examine your attitude and make sure that you're very thankful that you're living a complex and multifaceted life and you are doing your best that you can, but you're not You're not doing this weird thing that Clements is doing in this book. Um, and this book, I read it every single year. Even when things are going great, it's a great reminder of me how not to be Clements is not an example of some perfect paragon of a human being um, as he describes himself at the very beginning because of this weird element of self-absorbedness or cynicism or whatever that only actually, we're going to learn more about it in later chapters, but um, I really wanted to touch on that. So that's really the first part of the chapter as he talks about his own life and his past. And then he moves on to talking a lot about death. And again, the weird ways that people get off on death or the emotions that they feel or the aperitif, the, the little treats, you know, like, um, <laughs> and this is very interesting as well. And I think that he might be so obsessed or so interested with death because for him it's a new emotion that he's not so used to and it's such a different emotion from this virtue that he probably feels all the time and how self this is his own self-grandeur like he actually is looking for something on the complete opposite end of the spectrum in order to make him feel something new and novel and interesting and you know for someone so obsessed with his own self well, obsessed with his own ego and obsessed with his own virtue um, he might also just be sick of it and he might be looking for something that's just totally radically different, like the despair and suffering of death. That's where he now gets his real satiation, um, 
when all of the virtues in the world are not enough. And so I think that that's very interesting as well. Um, in terms of plot, not a lot happens here aside from just rambling and rambling. Um, there's not really a lot of movement aside from just one long, um, one long confession from Clements. So that will probably change a little bit in the next couple of chapters, but this is pretty much what you can expect from the novel, is a lot of just ranting. And so if you're waiting for some sort of big plot twist, um, it's not going to happen. I can tell you that right now. We are going to spend this entire book getting into the head of the protagonist the best that we can and looking to understand him. So before I end the discussion, there's one final thing that I want to talk about. And it's the event at the end where he describes he's just had a perfect day. He's had some of his liberalities. It's a beautiful, peaceful night in Paris. The streets are empty. It's so quiet. It's just every fucking like amazing thing that he talks about how great he is all wrapped into one day. And he sits down in the dark of night. He lights up a cigarette and he hears someone laughing. Perfectly quiet and then end of his great day, he relaxes for a moment of self-reflection, lights up a cigarette and he hears someone laughing. This is one of the most significant moments of the book, in my opinion. Um, we're going to learn about it a little bit more later as well. Um, but how powerful, how interesting that at this absolute peak, this pinnacle, this paragon that he's chasing, that he's so obsessed with being in high places and virtuous places to the degree where he chooses being a, a roofer because he's higher off the ground, um, to, to elevate his own ego or self-worth. Like after a day full of that, he pauses, he's had it all. It's the dark of night. He stops for a cigarette and an unidentified laugh just comes out of the, uh, out of the darkness. <laughs> it's so absurd. It's so hilariously Albert Camus. Um, and I just love this moment. And I think what might be happening here is like, sure, you can have all of the virtue in the world, but that is not all that there is to life. Um, in fact, simply chasing that as a dopamine hit, a virtue, is kind of an absurd and dumb practice. And like, <laughs> if you think you have it all figured out, probably not. And this is the chapter where we see the peak of Clements. This is a chapter where we hear him at his best. And slowly the, the cracks start to show, first in his cynicism of his own self-worth, then in this little tiny moment of laughter. Um, and that's only going to continue from there. So I think that's interesting. If there's anything else to talk about, maybe I keep thinking about this. But like Albert Camus himself, um, as a person from as far as I know about him, he was also extremely talented and friendly and social. And so he was a great author, a great philosopher, a great fiction writer, incredibly smart. Um, 
but he was also really handsome. He was cool. He was popular with the ladies. Like everyone loved Albert Camus. So I can imagine there's a certain amount of himself in this character here. I, it's impossible for me to attribute how much. I would actually say it's probably not all him, and it would be a mistake to say this is just Albert Camus writing about himself. Um, that's not what I think is going on here, but there is an element of Albert Camus within Jean Baptiste in the same way that though I cannot fully identify with Jean Baptiste, and there are plenty of ways that he is not an appealing character to me or not a relatable character to me, there are some parts of him where he's talking, and I can also feel that relation. Um, so that's just also really interesting, and I wonder how much this is a rant of Jean-Baptiste Clements and how much of it is a rant by Albert Camus. Um, so I think that's it for this chapter. That's a long time. That's a long episode, but um, that was chapter two. We've got four more left. Um, so <laughs> again, if you've if you've listened to the entire first episode and then decided to come back and listen to the second one and also made it this far, like, holy shit, whatever one or two people you are out there, um, you're awesome. You're really cool. Thank you for listening. Um, I really enjoy doing this. And like I said, if it makes one person's day out there a little bit better or a little bit more interesting, then it's all worth it to me. So that's it. That's episode two of Let's Read Albert Camus' The Fall. Um, I will be back in a couple of days to read chapter three, and we will continue this crazy long singular confession from our protagonist. Um, and I leave it there. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Jack Swing Collective. Peace. Peace.